0: Okay, in the, in, as we just said in the prayer, we're, we're going to be going into these Wednesday nights on the Gospel of John. So when we get into this Gospel here, the difference here of John, it was given to John, the beloved apostle, to bring out the glory and majesty and beauty of God the Father revealed in and through Jesus Christ while he walked on the earth. No one describes Christ in his personal glory, his person, and what he was accomplishing in terms of that glory and those that were blessed to, to be around it and to see it and for him to bless them. More than the Apostle John, he brought out that beauty like no one else. Christ on the earth glorified. Just as Paul brought out the heavenly Christ, who Christ is in all of his glory in terms of being in the heavens. But here, I'm just gonna read the first few verses and then we're going to uh, just give a background. Pretty much tonight, just gonna be a background before we get into the very uh, substance and meat of what God would have for us. So in 1 John, I mean in John, the Gospel of John, Chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in darkness, and the darkness Comprehended it not. It did not overwhelm it. Verse 6 says There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, a testimony, to bear witness of the light that all through him, through Christ, might believe. He was not that light. He, uh, John the Baptist himself, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lights every man, every human being that comes into the world. Now, the background of this is very, very interesting the way it goes into it, if we understand what is going on here. What is going on is, like John and just like Paul, both these men of God, When presenting Christ, again, John presenting him and who he truly was in all the glory while he walked the face of the earth, had his adversaries, his opponents, just as Paul did while Paul walked on the earth but was bringing out the heavenly Christ. But here, again, the testimony is who Christ is in his person and what what he was accomplishing while he walked the face of the earth. Now, we know this, when we understand and read these scriptures, there's such a divine wisdom which wrote these words and gave such a gospel at a comparatively late date, this was very late, heading towards uh, just possibly prior just to the first century to early first century. So in that sense, it was kind of late in terms of the word being recorded, but it was comparatively at a late date, when the enemy, and we know the enemy is Satan and he uses many different uh, adversaries, the enemy was seeking to do what? He was seeking to corrupt and destroy. Not by the Pharisees, by Pharisaic, not by the Sadducees or the Sadducean adversaries, and not even by these idolatrous Gentiles, all the unsaved, worldly people, but by apostates and by anti-Christian teachers, those that taught things as opposed to who Christ was and is in his deity and his humanity and what he was teaching. These, those particular ones, those anti-Christian teachers, were under the highest pretensions, under the highest pretensions to knowledge and power, what were they doing? They were trying to undermine the truth of Christ's person. That's very subtle in the way that it comes out today. Trying to undermine the truth of Christ's person, and of course, if you can do that, then you destroy his work that he accomplished. We have to keep in mind what he did, how... God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth to do what he did. How he was anointed of the Holy Spirit. And he went about doing good. Destroying, healing and destroying all the works of the devil. We see that in Acts 10 and verse 38. And we see it again in 1 John 3 and verse 8. But under the highest pretension, these particular apostates, and we'll, we'll understand what they are, these apostates... We're going against the truth of Christ's person, of his proper deity and his real humanity. And if you can touch or destroy one of those two things, it's to, first it's to the ruin of man, and of course, in one sense, and in a very clear sense, in the first sense, it's such a thankless and daring dishonor to God himself. So we see that this testimony Here in these first few verses that we read, especially those first five verses of John chapter one, verses one through five, there was a testimony and no testimony came in more more appropriately at this particular time than that of John. Why? He was an eyewitness. First John one and verse one goes into that. He was an eyewitness and he, John, reverently knew Christ intimately, above others. And he knew him as the Lord Jesus, as man on earth. But also, and we know this for a fact, God and man on earth. Who were these enemies that were coming against him? They're known as the Docetics. Just like it sounds, the Docetics. D-O-C-E-T-I-C-S and the Cyrenthians, just like that sounds. The Cyrenthians. These were two men who taught certain things. There's a story, and I remember reading this decades ago, probably like four decades ago, that the beloved apostle John, back then in those days, there were public baths. And a lot of these anti-Christian teachers used those same public baths that John the Apostle and certain other of the Apostles used. They would go into these baths. And John had such anger towards this man, Serinthus, who would teach these things, and we'll see what they were. He would send his disciples in first to make sure that that man, Serinthus, wasn't even there before he would go in there to use that bath because of how much the hatred and and the false teaching and the the destruction, trying to destroy the glory of Christ as he walked the face of the earth and how it would ruin so many others. Those were those two. Who were they? Well, they were this. They had this. The Docetics, under this man, the, the Docetics, what did they do? They denied the actual humanity of Christ, they denied it. He said he wasn't any different than you and I. So they denied it, his teaching. The Corinthian who separated the aeon, or in other words, his divine spirit from the man Jesus. So one is trying to do away with, with his, his deity, the other is trying to do away with his sinless, impeccable humanity. You wouldn't believe the false teaching that comes out of that, even in the things that are coming down the pipe in our particular time right here. And they were known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics. It's very interesting, that Greek word. And it's its not Gnostic or Gnosticism. It's just knowledge. But these particular ones, they taught that they were secret, they had all the secret knowledge and truth about the person of Christ in terms of his deity and in terms of his humanity. It's interesting, the Latin the Latin word is where we get our English word in ignoramus, <laughs> in ignoramus. And that's what these Gnostics were. They operated in pride. And a Gnostic, to understand what a Gnostic is, he's the very opposite of an agnostic. You ever hear that term agnostic? It's just the A is the Greek alpha, the first letter in the Greek uh, alphabet. And alpha is in the negative, not enough knowledge. That's what an agnostic is. So one declared they knew everything, (laughs) the Gnostics. Then there were all the others that said there's no way possible with any knowledge at all that you can come to a conclusion about these issues about Christ. They they would say it's just impossible. And so one says, I know, the Gnostic. I know. What's behind it is pride. The other says, I don't know. That's the agnostic, the agnostic. And both of these, they were the unsaved people that didn't have enough knowledge, they just didn't know enough. You wouldn't believe it today in Christianity. Christians, born-again Christians, because they don't have proper teaching and preaching, because they don't, and there's many reasons why, is their hunger for the word. Do they hear it enough? Do they avail themselves when they have the opportunity to do so as Christians? Or they just don't have teaching and so they live in areas of being agnostic. I don't have enough knowledge because I haven't had enough teaching. I've had bad teaching and it keeps me from knowing the reality of Christ's person and the work that he's accomplished. Well, those were the so-called Gnostics, the Dacetics and the Cyrinthian. So-called Gnostics, the knowing ones. And boy, they were proud. They said to get into this group, you had to have, you were had to be secretly initiated by these higher ones into these groups to be able to have all this false teaching. And so they were the knowing ones. And then, of course, as we said, the agnostics, those were the ones that deny any certain knowledge of God and his things. It's absolutely not even possible. While the gnostics, again, they claim to be initiated and to have the superior knowledge. That's what you have uh, today, pretty much. And, and the sad thing about it is, is obviously these only operated in the world under the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, 2, and they would function under the God of this world. That's what 2 Corinthians 4.3 states. If our gospel be hid, and our gospel is really the gospel of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what it is. And to not understand it, to not function in it as Christians, and with the truth functioning as you can't know it, it just doesn't seem possible to know these certain things, or on the other side, through false teaching, bad teaching, and being deceived, if our gospel be hid in 2 Corinthians 4-3, it is hid to them that are who? That are lost. How many Christians function like that? Just lost, and they get confused because they don't have the solid foundation of Christ who he is in his person and the work that he's accomplished based upon the fact that when God became a man in and through Jesus Christ, he became a man forever. He became truly God and truly man, like we posted uh, this morning. Just to touch on it briefly. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom... In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, in whom the God, that's the religious God of this world, in whom the God of this world has blinded or hardened the minds of them which believe not. The enemy convinces Christians through bad teaching and no teaching, but through bad teaching convinces them about lies, about the person and work of Christ, or on the other side of Christians that the truth is too deep. They can't know it. They can never know it. And they just settle for being, they just settle down on the earth and just get by day to day. Just get by day to day and that's it. And hopefully soon they'll go to heaven. Well, that's not Christ. That's not the ideal that, and the truth in the reality of the life that Christ is to those that are His. And so, here we have this incredible truth. We have this incredible truth. Gnosticism. What is it? We see it in so many forms today. Gnosticism. One of them today is all this New Age stuff. It comes way back, way back from this stuff from these particular things. What is Gnosticism? Here, in this particular place, those adversaries, they came against John because he was preaching Christ, the earthly Christ in all his glory, and against Paul coming against him while he taught about the heavenly Christ and all of his glory. They were, they were Gnostics, and it was a mix of Greek culture. In Greek culture, if you read 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, you will see that the Greeks, they were very interested in philosophy. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Philosophy. Supposedly, the love of the truth. Philosophy. Well, there was this Greek culture and it was with this Oriental Eastern mysticism. That's where you get New Age, by the way. And then they had this licentiousness that gave a curious attraction for many who did not know how to think clearly. You see? Christians that aren't taught properly, that don't even have the foundational truths of Christianity, of which Ephesians, the first three chapters are just the ABC foundations, foundational truths of Christianity. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't even have a proper foundation. Don't even have, don't even understand positional truth. And when you don't understand positional truth, then you get into all kinds of confusion in your experience. Things seem like they're, again, we've said so many times when the scriptures are brought out, it's too deep. It's too deep for you. It's beyond your capacity, which we know is the lie from the enemy. We know that without any question about it. So it had this curious attraction, but it was only in a curious attraction to those that were never taught how to think clearly. They never understood 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 16. Never understood it. And so because of that, because of that, they couldn't think clearly. But here we have John and Paul, but here John. They foresaw through the power of the Holy Spirit, They foresaw this dire peril to Christianity. And then even by the time they got into the second century here in Christianity, it gave the the purity of Christianity, the purity of Christ, a gigantic struggle in church history. You can see it all the way through to those centuries in the dark ages. Dark because they didn't have the light and revelation of the glory and majesty of Christ in his person truly in his person is truly God and truly man and in the work that he accomplished as that lamb to God in propitiation for us as a substitution thereby being reconciled to God and so there was this gigantic struggle it threatened to undermine the gospel message by deifying the devil along with dethroning Christ that's what it is and, where, and you may think, what does that mean? Well, remember what Satan is, if we know him and how he functioned when he fell? He was perfect in all his ways in Ezekiel 28, verse 15. Look at those. Read those chapters and how he was created, how God created him. God created him. Second, obviously, a very vast second to the Trinity. And he, and he was formed to be able to sing and lead choir worship and worship of their creator, the pre-incarnate Christ. The same pre-incarnate Christ that Isaiah saw high and lifted up in Isaiah six in verse one. All that, remember in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, his desire is to be like the most high. Every single philosophy Every single ism outside of the person and the work that Christ has accomplished is just the enemy trying to deify himself using corrupt, evil, fallen humanity along with, to what? To dethrone Christ. That's what even these teachings are that are coming, that we're faced with today. That we're faced with today. Absolutely, no question about it. And so as we just get this background, this is the gigantic struggle right here that John was facing. That's why even when you see 1 John 1, 1 through 3, and I'll just touch on that as briefly and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up this uh, this uh, fairly uh, quick introduction here before again, as, a, as I said, we get into the meat and reality of this phenomenal gospel. It's so different in in what it did in its proper place and what it brought out, just like Matthew brought out, and we'll see that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those synoptics. So the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here we have 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Here's what he's saying again. That which was from the beginning, what was that? The beginning in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the word. Wait do we get into the meat of this. It's so incredible. So incredible. That in 1 John 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning in eternity past, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, said, I saw him. His humanity was real. And we looked upon him, really, we gazed upon him. And what he's bringing out here in 1 John 1, verse 1, when it says we looked upon him, they were gazing at him. And remember, in Isaiah 53, in verse 2, there was no outward beauty that they would be drawn to him. That's brought out in the types of the tabernacle. In the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, the outward look of him was all animal skins, badger skins and certain animal skins. But inside it was made of the most beautiful, gorgeous colors and materials. And that's what's brought out in John 1, verse 1. Uh, And also, again, in 1 and 14, and we'll get to that. Uh, in a beautiful way but remember here's John 1 verse 14 and the word God is the very son of God was made flesh humanity and dwelt dwelt among us and we beheld his glory that's what he's saying We, we gaze upon his humanity but you know what we saw we beheld his glory gazed upon his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. He was filled up with all that grace and truth is. And that's what he was saying here. We've seen in 1 John 1, verse 1, we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, gazed upon him, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have actually seen it and bear witness, give you proper testimony, and show unto you that eternal life that dwelt in his perfect humanity, which was with the Father and still in his, his deity, never left the bosom of the Father. You can't separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their deity. Which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you may also have fellowship with us. Do you see what fellowship is? What does fellowship have to do with? Christian fellowship, what does it have to do with? The person and the work of Jesus Christ, period. That's fellowship, period. That's what fellowship is. That we, that which we have seen and heard declaring unto, you that, that you also may have fellowship with us. So what do we do when we get together? One vessel filled with Christ speaks of Christ to another. And they exchange, they have an exchange. See? That word fellowship. That word fellowship, Kinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Kenonia. What is fellowship when when two Christians get together and, and listen, you could be cleaning cars. You could be making cabinets. You could be working in an insurance agency. You could be working at a pediatrics. You could be retired and still doing things. But you could still have fellowship when it's available, and not all the time it is. But that individual can still fellowship with Christ inwardly. But when two Christians get together, it's the setting aside of private interests. Did you hear that? It's not describing private interest to Christians. It has nothing to do with private interest and desires. But it's the joining in with another or others for common purposes. And what is the common purpose? What's the one thing we have in common? It's Christ in us in Colossians 1 and verse 27. It is Christ in us. That's what was coming. The enemy was coming against he was coming against them to keep people from receiving Jesus Christ, his person and the work that he accomplished. So he would, those the, the ascetics, they would attack the actual humanity while the Corinthians would attack, would attack his actual deity. We'll get into the meat of what they were teaching back then. Just like today, every cult, every New Age thing, lordship, salvation, all of it, has to do with this issue. The person and the work that Christ has accomplished, even to those that think they must go through the tribulation period. That is a demonic attack on the nature, character, finished work of Christ himself. When it states clearly that they that believe him do not have a, and are born again in John 3 and verse 36, the wrath does not abide on them, Christ took that. The wrath does abide on those that don't have Christ as their their Savior and their Lord, of which they don't make Him their Lord. He was there; He is Lord before anybody ever was, before a host of angels were created or a human race was created. He is and will always be Lord, being God Himself. And so, these are the attacks to keep. Those that do need a Savior need to be born again to keep them from having him and receiving him as their Savior. And then for Christians, to keep them confused and hearing everything that comes down the pipe. I used to say to the local assembly in Tampa, Florida, to which I passed it off and on for about 20 years, there were some young women. And some of the young women, and I, a kid, I exaggerate not. One young woman was 86 years old. She acted like she was 50, she had a beautiful voice. The oldest person that was in any local assembly I ever had and she was as clear as a bell and boy, she had some humor. She was, we celebrated her 102nd birthday. And even back then, all these things were there. Way back, even there, all these things. These attacks on Christians to keep them little babies and to convince them that there's better things to to gain our attention other than hearing the preaching and teaching the word and growing. It's the same today. To To get those confused. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is the reality there's an absolute reality in these things we are not people we are not people of this earth we're not nothing about us because the earth when we talk about the earth we need to know the difference and we're gonna wrap this up because this is just an introduction tonight and we're gonna get into the meat of it but that we are we may live on this earth But we are not governed by what governs it, which is the world system. The world system. Styles. How how the world dresses. What they listen to. What they do. What is the means of them coming together. And oh, how the world. Literally. Early first century. You see it. Early 1st century, you see it in 1st John 2, 18 and 19. You see it, early 1st century, again, in Revelations, the 2nd chapter. The world infiltrating the church. Who's the God of this world? Second Corinthians 4, 4. Who's the prince in power of the air? Ephesians 2, 2. Who's the father of all lies? In John 8, verse 44. Who is that? Who's the prince who is the prince of this earth, that Jesus said, I have nothing to do with him and his whole system in John 12, 31 and John 14, 30. It's Satan. And God put a difference. He put a difference between, and even in the type, between Egypt and Israel. In Exodus 11, verse 7, there's to be an absolute difference. People to see, people are to see us when they see us. They see an absolute difference. They see, yeah, we're just human. We're human like them. We're just as human, but very different. Because, of course, not in the way that they gazed upon Christ in 1 John 1, verse 1, and not the way that they gazed upon his perfect humanity. His deity was glowing out of his humanity in John 1, verse 14. But the world should see us as, as his epistle in 1 Corinthians second f- Corinthians 3 in those first six verses, especially two and three, we're to be his written epistle. He's to, he is to be that light in us because who are we? Are we children of wrath in Christ? Has he dealt with all our with all the wrath that we deserved? in 1 Thessalonians 1:10 and in 1 Thessalonians 5:9. Yes, he's dealt with all that wrath. Who are we? We, in Ephesians 5.8 and 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, we are children of the light. And that light is to be manifested in us as a vessel. See how this, this light, to shine properly, there has to be a vessel. There has to be a vessel. We have that treasure in 2 Corinthians 4.7, in these fragile clay jars that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And we have that privilege. We have that privilege. You know, and and as we close this, you know, Paul, again, he had all kinds of of adversaries, just like John, the beloved beloved apostle. He had all kinds of those adversaries, many adversaries. He had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. He has the the Docetics and the Serentians. Just like just like Paul did. And that's when he wrote and, and the Holy Spirit had him write in first Corinthians 16 and verse 9, he said, "A great door and effectual is open unto me. That was the, to be the preaching, the precise preaching and teaching of the person. And when we say person, that's his true deity and his true humanity in one. And the work that he, in that deity and humanity that he accomplished. That great and effectual door is still open for preaching and teaching this reality and all of hell comes against it. You know, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, he said, and upon this rock, he said, I will build my church. I will build up and edify my church On this foundation, this massive ledge, this foundation that I am. That's what Paul was preaching and teaching in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. How we should be so careful how we build on that foundation. We should be so precise and we should labor so diligently in the word of God to know these things, to have an answer in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. To give unto every man that asks us a reason of the hope that's in us. We need to be taught for his glory, for our blessing, and to be an epistle in God's answer to those. And as a testimony to a whole angelic realm in 1 Peter 1 and verse 12. And that's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9. A great and effectual door is open unto me, and there are many adversaries were the adversaries, and we've shared this before, were the adversaries that came against him constantly, the reason that he should quit. They became the reason for him to stay because in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but that's a badge of honor. In Philippians chapter one, In verse 29, it is given unto us, not only to believe on him, and if I don't know who he is and the preciseness of his person and the work that he accomplished, can I believe on him and trust him? Or will I walk around like a baby, confused? Like a baby, because other things have taken my interest away from Christ, who has given me not only everything, but giving me himself. Each of us he did that individually for. And so we have this great and effectual door, and there are many adversaries, many adversaries. But it is given unto us not only in Philippians 1.29, not only to believe on his name, his name means, again, his person and the work that he's accomplished. it's not only given unto us to believe and trust in his person, in the work that he's accomplished, but to also suffer for his sake. That's what Paul was teaching. Why do we suffer? I'm not talking about the bad suffering. I'm talking about the positive suffering in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. What does that mean? There's a depth of fellowship in suffering. In Philippians 3.10, Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. All that positive, beautiful truth. Do you ever wonder and see how incredible that is, all that positive truth? And then all of a sudden the attacks come in and there's suffering, undeserved. Where did it come from? Why am I, why, what is going on here, God? And this is the answer. It has to do with the person and the work that Christ has accomplished in you and I, in, yes, in us as individuals, as, as vessels of his glory. Christ did us in Colossians 1, verse 27. The hope, the guarantee of a glorious future. But we pass through suffering on our way to glory, just like Christ did. So it's not only given for us to believe and to be taught and grow in grace and knowledge in 2 Peter three eighteen, of his person and the work that he's accomplished and the preciseness of what he, who he is and what he's accomplished, but also to suffer for him. He's apportioned it unto us. Did you know that? He's apportioned to each of us. This great portion that each of us are individually, like no other Christian. Isn't that beautiful? We never have to compare, because we're one of a kind in Christ. Not only for his glory, obviously for his glory and our blessing, but for the blessing of the body itself. But also to suffer for him. And that's what Paul was saying. He's saying, since Christ left and he came, And I received him as my Savior in Acts, the ninth chapter, in those first six verses. He not only gave me all, he not only gave me his person and all the work that he accomplished that only he could do, but he gave me the privilege to be able to suffer for him. That's what he wrote in Colossians 1 and verse 24. He said, I fill up of the sufferings of Christ that Christ would have continued to have had he had still been here. And he's given that to us. But if we suffer with him in 2 Timothy 2.12, what? We reign with him, not only for all eternity, in terms of the rewards in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and in Romans 14, 10 through 12, the beam seat, to receive these rewards, the suffering, the loss, or the gain of rewards. What a, what a privilege. But, what? To fill it up. We fill it up. It's a privilege. And so when trials come, when, when seemingly bad things come against you, we know the spirit of that. That's what it is. We don't have to question why this fiery tri- trial is trying us as though it's some strange thing in 1 Peter 4.12. But we know how to think precisely if we suffer with him we'll reign with him not only for all eternity but in time at that very moment because paul said and we'll close with this philippians 3 10 he said i want to know him in the power of his resurrection but there's a depth of intimate fellowship with him that goes into suffering and then it says the fellowship of his sufferings did you hear that when we suffer righteously when we suffer without sin, through no fault of our own, did you know he suffers with us? He suffers with us. He does. We're never alone in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. He's tasted it. It's the suffering in humanity like no other human being. And what a privilege that is. What a privilege. This is the enemy. He's going to try to keep others from being born again, receiving Christ, and then to keep Christians from being taught properly, thereby functioning, suffering righteously, and having that the glory of the depth of that fellowship. To keep out even the, the ABCs, the power of his resurrection, is those first three chapters of, of Ephesians. But then it goes into a great depth of suffering with him. And then all, and then what? Suffering in time, which is like a moment compared to an eternity, an eternity to be with him in a depth of fellowship. In Revelations 2 and verse 17, we we will eat with him privately for all eternity, individuals. You say, how can he do that? Well, he's God. (laughs) He's God in humanity. We'll eat the hidden manna. Secret man, and secret, when he went with his word, we feasted on him. In John the 6th chapter, verses 30, right to 59, we feasted on him. He was our sustenance to get us through these times of great trial and suffering. That goes into eternity. Then he gives us a white stone, like a diamond. And he inscribes on it a name which reveals a nature that he formed in us and us in him. And only the one that gives that stone and the one that receives it will know the depth of that intimacy for all eternity. Would the suffering of time, which is but for a moment, work in us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory? In Second Corinthians 4:17. For now we look not at the things that are seen. We look away from them in Hebrews 12:2, and look unto Jesus. For the things that are seen are temporal. Listen. The times that we are in, and time is fleeting, by the way. Time is short, 1 Corinthians 7:29. Redeem the time, Ephesians 5:16. Because time will be no more in Revelations 10, 6. Then we enter into, in Revelations 22 and verse 11, the fixedness of eternity. And I don't know about you, but I want to, at least in my life, have him redeem the time and buy back through redemption, all those wasted years, and he'll be faithful to do it. He, he'll create it in us if we're available. So Father, thank you so much for what you've given us. Oh God, please, no matter what, through anything, tired, no matter. Oh God, the hunger, just increase it in us, that hunger for you, that to hunger and thirst after you. Because you said if we would, That we'd be filled. So, Father, thank you for this great opportunity that we can still be alive, where we can store you up in our vessel to have this intimacy with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.